Well, welcome to the Health Pulse podcast. I'm Dr. Connor Delaney, CEO and President of Cleveland Clinic Florida. Today, we're going to be talking about vaccine development and research and its importance to the field of preventative medicine. We're also going to discuss some key advancements that we hope to see coming in the near future. And to do that, we have a very special guest, Dr. Ted Ross. Ted is the Global Director of Vaccine Development within Cleveland Clinic. In his role, he leads the development of novel vaccines and the implementation of vaccine trials for a variety of infectious diseases, including influenza, HIV, and of course, COVID-19. Ted, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted you can be here. Well, welcome. Thank you for having me. Ted, maybe you could start off by telling us a little more about yourself and your professional background and how you got into this field. Yeah, I will. Uh, I was trained as a molecular virologist. Uh, I got my PhD from Vanderbilt University uh, 20 years ago, and I was really studying how viruses infect cells and how they transmit between people. Uh, One of my postdoctoral fellowships was at Emory University in the late 1990s, and it was at the the brand new Emory Vaccine Center that had just been built. And during that time, uh, there was an outbreak of high path avian influenza in Hong Kong. And those samples came back to the United States in late 90s um, at the CDC. And so Emory University and the CDC are very close to each other. And there's a lot of collaborations that go on between those two institutions. And therefore, many of the samples ended up in our laboratory at Emory. And so I got into studying influenza and how to develop better vaccines to combat new strains of influenza that develop. And that took off on my own research career at making vaccines and studying vaccines for infectious diseases. When I went to the University of Pittsburgh, I was there for 10 years um, working on vaccine development and then was recruited down to the University of Georgia as the director of their vaccine center at the time. Spent another decade there before joining Cleveland Clinic about 18 months ago. Well, it's it's quite a journey and you, it certainly led you to being an absolute expert in the field. But when we think about vaccines, obviously COVID-19 has shaped the conversation around the topic over the last few years, obviously, with everything that's gone on. Um, but vaccines have a much broader range of uses and diseases they can help prevent. Maybe you could give listeners a brief overview of what a vaccine is and why they're so important and can contribute to so many things. Yeah, at the basic level, a vaccine is a molecule or a protein that is used to stimulate our immune system to set up a long-term memory response against that particular pathogen or disease. So that when we ever encounter it again in the future, we have a rapid immediate response of our immune system to protect us against the invading organism, uh, against future outbreaks. But vaccines have now been expanded beyond infectious disease. Uh, There's a lot of use for them now in cancer uh, vaccine development, even Alzheimer's, some other types of diseases that we don't traditionally think of as being associated with vaccine development, because really it's addressing how we listed an immune response that will protect us against developing severe or um, long-term disease. So at its simplest level, it's using a tiny protein or antigen to stimulate an immune response to protect the person or or patient-to-be against something, whether it's an infectious disease or whether it's a cancer down the road, something like that. Yes, exactly. That's what we do. Yeah. 
So maybe you could also provide a, a brief overview of the research and development process for vaccines so people understand a little bit about what goes into it and also the steps that are necessary to ensure that vaccines are safe and effective. Yeah, I mean, the public may not realize how long it takes to bring a vaccine from an idea all the way through FDA licensure and eventually marketing. With COVID, it was a rapid and emergency use authorization. But I should say that many years went into developing mRNA-based vaccines that eventually led to the first COVID vaccines. But in general, when we design a vaccine, we either design it on a computer or we use some empirical uh, development to determine how we're going to design our vaccine. And then we have to go through several rounds of what are called preclinical testing. That can be tested in the in the laboratory, or that's tested in small animals like mice to determine whether or not we make effective immune responses against whatever the vaccine is we're developing. And that can go for many years to try and come up with the best formulation, the best routes, what compounds might need to go with the vaccines to stabilize it or to make a nice immune response. And once that's been done, you then try and determine whether or not it's going to be effective in human beings. And in doing so, you have to set up um, different types of trials to determine the safety and uh, efficacy of these vaccines. So of course, foremost, they need to be safe in people and not cause harm, but then they also need to be effective. They have to stimulate whatever immune response that you are expecting. And then you oftentimes wanna see whether or not it actually protects people against the very disease you're trying to um, make a vaccine against. And that can oftentimes take thousands of people in order to see that effect because many diseases are rare and it takes a long time to see somebody get infected, whereas you have to vaccinate a lot of different people. So this process is normally about a 20 year process to go through all of these steps and eventually get FDA approval. Um, there have been some improvements in that, uh, as you've seen with COVID, you, you can get authorizations faster than you could before, but still safety is the number one thing. It has to be safe or else there's no point in doing it. And then you have to demonstrate that it's effective. And really only about one or 2% of vaccines ever make it to licensure and become a, a product that's on the market. So there's a lot of steps along the way in which you can decide that a vaccine isn't going to work or is not going to be effective. And therefore you cut your losses and go back to the drawing board and pick another design and try and go through the same process. Well, and particularly safety is important because they end up being given to so many people to try and try and have that effect. You mentioned in your answer that obviously all the background work on MRA vaccines was important and allowed us, you know, use that 10 or 20 years in development uh, when COVID came along. So it's it's more of a vehicle that allows people to produce the protein that that incites the immune response. Maybe you'd mention a couple of other types of of vaccines, you know, and, and when, you know, virus itself can be used, etc. So the mRNA creates the protein to give the uh, immune stimulation, but there are other types as well. Yeah, you can... Um design vaccines in a variety of different ways. One is you just generate one part of the pathogen and you generate this is just a protein, a little small part of the pathogen that you then purify and you use that to stimulate the immune system. And we see that in influenza all the time. We, there's protein-based vaccines that are used, but you can also, which is more common and has been used over the long history of vaccine development, has been to take an actual pathogen and then kill it or inactivate it. And by doing so, you're essentially using the shell of the dead uh, pathogen as your immunogen to give to a, a particular person. But you can also have what are called live vaccines. 
These are vaccines that still will infect and they will still replicate or duplicate in the host, but they've been attenuated in a way that don't doesn't cause disease. In fact, sometimes you don't even know that you, you know, unless somebody told you were vaccinated, you wouldn't even feel anything. And there's many vaccines that have been used that way over time. Examples are like the polio vaccine, the smallpox vaccine. They were all live versions of vaccines the measles vaccine, the mumps vaccine, these are all been used because it was the easiest way to design a vaccine is just take the particular pathogen and just attenuate it, which means make it less disease causing and use that to infect somebody. And it makes a very nice immune response and sets up a long-term memory. That's why as children, oftentimes we get the childhood vaccines and they last for the rest of our lives because they are these live versions of vaccines. Ones that are dead or protein-based versions oftentimes take multiple vaccinations. You have to come back many times over a lifetime to re-stimulate somebody's immune system. So they don't stimulate a lifelong immunity, but they do do a pretty good job to do memory for 10 years or so. Yeah, so thanks. That's a great explanation. So different mechanisms of, of stimulating these responses, and it's allowed us prevent a, a number of diseases and you listed you listed some of them. Now, Ted, maybe you could talk a little bit about the areas of vaccine development that you particularly focus on. Yeah, my, my passion is we have been developing uh, next generation of influenza vaccines now for several years. And we partnered with some large pharmaceutical companies and we licensed our vaccines to them and some of them have now made it into the marketplace. We were awarded a very large contract for the National Institutes of Health in 2019 to bring the next generation of vaccines into uh, the market so that people wouldn't have to be vaccinated every single year, that they could have a longer level of immunity between uh, needing a new vaccine shot, and really to come up with a broader, more broad active vaccine that will wreck all strains of influenza. Right now, we have to make multiple components of our flu vaccine every year, and it changes from season to season. Some of that is due to the fact that the virus keeps changing on us, but also the fact that our immunity to influenza vaccines is pretty weak and it doesn't last very long. So that's one reason why we have annual flu shots and everyone's encouraged to get one. And particularly as you get older, they're more susceptible to influenza, plus their immunity doesn't last as long. So the ability to have a vaccine that would last for you know, three years or five years or 10 years before you had to update it would be a huge improvement in influenza vaccinations. So our laboratory has designed vaccines based upon computational modeling um, to, to come up with the best regions of different flu viruses to make into our vaccine. We've actually manufactured these. Uh, we are doing going planning to do phase one trials in 2024 um, so that we can show that they work in humans because we've been testing them in animals now for almost a decade. And so now really, it's really time to go find out how well these work in people to see if we can enhance or supplant the current way we do flu vaccinations every single season. What's nice about our technology is that it's amenable to a variety of different uh, pathogens and diseases. So we've been able to um, use the same technology for COVID-19. We've used it for HIV vaccine development. We've used it for a virus called dengue virus, which affects a lot of people in the tropics. We've also been able to adapt it to um, malignancies and cancer-associated uh, diseases. So it's really something that allows us a lot of flexibility to design different vaccines. And that's what we'd like to do here at the Cleveland Clinic is to bring these vaccines to people that are in our community and actually eventually license them for the entire world. Yeah, that's incredibly exciting. 
And so you're bringing up one of the challenges with, with vaccines or the patient end of the vaccine is that people don't always maintain that immune response once we give it to them. So the ability to have some kind of core antigen for, for a pathogen and the ability to sustain that response over time would, would really transform how we can manage and prevent these diseases. That's incredibly exciting work that you're discussing. Maybe, Ted, you could tell me a little more about some of the key impacts and advancements that you're hoping to see within the field of vaccine development? You probably alluded to some of them, but wh wh where do you see it going next? Well, where vaccines are heading are that we realize now that there's a lot of different populations of people in, in around the world. And so one of our focuses has been to, to design vaccines for high-risk populations. Most vaccines are tested in young adults, and so they can be designed and work well in people in their 20s. But we have people of all different ages, different comorbidities, different stages of life, different genetic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds. And so the idea of designer vaccines are starting to become uh, the norm, where you design vaccines for certain populations of people, then it may not be the same vaccine that a different person may take. An example would be right now for flu, we now have high higher doses of the vaccine are being used for elderly. We actually have vaccines that have compounds added to them called adjuvants, for the elderly, but they're not given to younger people. And so the idea that you can have different vaccines for different populations is really going to be necessary. You know, people at high risk, you know, that are really high risk to influenza, for example, or for COVID are, of course, the very young and the very old, but also people that are pregnant, um, people have diabetes, have heart disease, they're more susceptible to getting these respiratory infections. And so we need the vaccines that work effectively in these populations, which may be different than people that are considered young and healthy. And I think that's where the field's now going is to these ideas of designer vaccines. We figure out what's the best one for you, and then we pull that off the shelf and we give it to you. And that's great. That could be transformative, just like designer drugs and designer therapeutic pathways, there'd be a, a designer vaccine. Yeah. Um, array uh, and you choose the best one. Now I understand as well that a major piece of your research surrounds development of the more advanced and longer lasting flu vaccine. You talked a little bit uh, about that before, but where do you see that going, the, the longer lasting vaccine um, in the future? Well, we have two focuses. Um, one is we want a vaccine that works against all the different varieties or variants of influenza in a given season. Right now, the flu vaccine in any given season is between 30 and 60% effective in people because people get infected with strains that are not well matched to the vaccine. So we're designing an essentially vaccine antigens or, or versions that will hopefully raise that rate. And we can see that in animals, it raises it close to 100%. So all the different varieties of flu that circulate now can be neutralized within a season and so the goal is then to stretch that over multiple seasons so that you can use the same vaccine. You can have now what's called year-long manufacturing. You don't have to worry about seasonal manufacturing of a particular vaccine. It can be manufactured all the time and stretch that out so the person doesn't have to get vaccinated annually, but they still maintain an immunity against all the variants that are circulating at any given moment. Because really it's breaking not only are protecting you as the individual against disease and severity and hospitalization, but it's also preventing transmission. The ability that you, even if you're infected and you don't feel any disease, that you don't shed that virus to your neighbors, your family, your friends. And that's what's still happening with SARS-CoV-2. While we see a drop in the severity of disease, the vaccines that were designed haven't really broken the chain of transmission. In fact, in the hospital clinic over here uh, that we work in, 
we are still picking up COVID-19 positive people in individuals that have been vaccinated multiple times. So transmission is still happening, even if people aren't coming down with severe disease. So we do need different types of vaccines that will break that transmission, reduce the viral, what is called the viral load in your respiratory tract to a point where you will no longer shed it and be able to infect somebody else. That's great. So it'll really change disease pathways and um, profiles um, and, and prevent transmission. That's exciting. Maybe, Ted, you could talk a little bit about some of the funding mechanisms that have helped support your research. And also thinking, I know there's been huge community support for many of these projects, but talk a little bit about philanthropy and how it can be so important in sustaining your type of research. So since the early days of when I started doing vaccine development, we've had support from people like Bill and the Gates Foundation. Uh, we've had support from the National Institutes of Health. We've had it from corporate sponsors. Um, what we're really looking for is to sustain our clinic and to keep it going. It really does take community support, not only for people that enroll in our studies that want to participate, and we have ongoing studies now that are useful for people to come in and get vaccinated, and then we take blood samples and we determine how effective the vaccines are in different people, but also philanthropy, being able to have community support to keep the financial going, because it, we can't always rely on the government as we know it tends to ebb and wane their interest in various uh, scientific endeavors. Um, it depends on whatever the particular goals are of the individual uh, administrators and the Congress that it goes every two years. So really having a sustained amount of, of support from the community is really quite important. So the more philanthropy uh, that dollars that we can have, it would really help keep us going and help really understand and develop these vaccines that can bring them to market. Yeah, and I think we're we're lucky at Cleveland Clinic and with all the work you're doing and some of the other leaders and some of the other fields that we've been able to develop this phenomenal community support to help us really change and improve care for the future. But with your role, you're also really well able to take a global view of vaccine development and think outside of Florida, the US, and, and even more broadly. What areas of the world do you think can most beneficially be, well, can be helped really through your research? Well, I should say we do have a clinic up in Cleveland, Ohio as well, that we're running these kind of studies well. But the network of the Cleveland Clinic makes it very useful. We're really looking at the Abu Dhabi location where we can actually, it's a really nice center of the world where people come from three different continents and interact. Um, Africa is a really big, important area because there's really underserved um, people getting vaccines there. And then Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, is really one of the biggest issues because that's where a lot of these emerging pathogens come from, as we saw with SARS-CoV-2. So being able to have a presence there and be able to have work with partners and have vaccine development occurring really internationally is quite useful. Um, we've just started a collaboration with a group down in Brazil so that we can actually get access to people that are um, infected with particular pathogens that we can develop vaccines to. So really, it is a global development program. It's not just for Florida or Ohio. It's really for the entire world because it's hard to, we don't live isolated anymore, as you can tell. A virus that emerges in a tiny village in China can someday take over the world and end up uh, infecting everyone. And that's something that we really need to be prepared for. Yeah, absolutely. We certainly, we certainly lived that um, event. Tell me, Ted, is there any other additional information about vaccine development that you think would be important for our listeners to know about? Well, I should say that we, we not only are developing new vaccines, but we're also studying how the current vaccines on the market work in different high-risk populations. And so we have ongoing studies 
in Florida and in Cleveland, where we had asked for volunteers to come in and get the traditional flu vaccines, for example, or COVID vaccines, and then we're assessing their long-term effectiveness. And right now with COVID, there's still a lot to learn about how people react to the COVID vaccines and how long the immunity lasts, what happens as we get new variants. So it's an ongoing study and you, anyone can volunteer for this. Um, we can always provide the information available for our program. So if people would like to volunteer in those communities, we have we come to the communities. We don't just have you come to us. So we have the ability at various local clinics that we go around and have people show up and we can enroll them in our studies if they want to participate. Well, that's great to hear. And uh, knowing we have the Cleveland Clinic organization in Ohio and Florida and London and Abu Dhabi and and Toronto and beyond, uh, hopefully it gives you a great platform for some of these international connections and opportunities that you're exploring. Ted, I really want to thank you so much for sharing so much detailed and great information with us. It's been wonderful to listen to your expertise on a topic that obviously it's incredibly important, um, but it's so topical right now, top of everybody's mind. So thank you for your time and thank you for joining me today. No, thank you, I really enjoyed it. And to our listeners, to learn more about Dr. Ross's research, you can visit learner, that's L-E-R-N-E-R dot C-C-F dot org forward slash Florida. Or if you want to participate in or learn more about research opportunities, call Cleveland Clinic at 772-345-8100, extension 14447. Join me next time on our next episode of the Health Pulse podcast. And make sure to like and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss out on our latest episodes. Thank you.